Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Amy Gravino. Amy is an autism sexuality advocate and relationship coach in the Center for Adult Autism Services at Rutgers University. She is also the president of ASCOT Consulting, which offers autism consulting, college coaching, and mentoring services for organizations, schools, and individuals on the autism spectrum and their families. Amy is an international speaker, an award-winning writer, and currently serves on the boards of directors of several autism organizations. Follow Amy on Twitter, at Amy Gravino, and Instagram, at amy.gravino. And visit www.amygravino.com to learn more about her. Here I am with Amy. I bet you baked all the bread and binged all the TV shows during quarantine. But have you created an exact copy of your genitals? Yeah, I didn't think so. Meet Clona Willy. Clona Willy and Clona Pussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of a penis or vulva at home into a high-quality sex toy or memento. Check them out at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Follow them on Instagram, at clonawillykit. Hello, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. How's it going today? Hi, Danielle. It's going very well. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Good, good. We're really happy to have you. Um, let's, let's go ahead and get started by you sharing your name, your pronouns, and what you do. Uh, my name is Amy Gravino. Uh, my pronoun, pronouns are she slash her. Uh, I am an international speaker um, who gives presentations about autism and mainly autism and sexuality all over the world, or at least I did before COVID happened. Um, I'm also a relationship coach in the Center for Adult Autism Services at Rutgers University, which I started doing in March. Very strange time to start a new job, middle of a pandemic, but so it goes. Yeah. Uh, and I've been working this whole time. So, uh, but yes, and I, and I'm, I serve on the board of directors of several different autism organizations and um, I've given a TED talk on autism and sexuality um, and I've been doing this for, for quite some time now and I really love it. Amazing. Wow. You are extremely accomplished. We are very, very lucky to have you and congrats on your new job. Like you said, very strange to be starting a new job during this time, but I'm sure that there are benefits from that, you know, being able to work remotely and, and hopefully, you know, get some flex hours in. Um, but that's, that's super incredible. Um, my next question is, how did you know that you really wanted to be an autism and sexuality expert? What's the path that kind of led you there? Well, I, I have to laugh at this question because I, I didn't know I wanted to be an autism and sexuality expert because that's not something I think anybody really sets out <laughs> to be initially. Um, I mean, I, I was diagnosed on the spectrum at the age of 11. So I, back then it was called Asperger syndrome. That was, it had just gone into the DSM-4 at that time. And uh, now it would be considered autism level one. And uh, so my past began just with being somebody who was on the spectrum and living this life of, of someone who is different and who knows what it is like to be different. And the, the, the two paths sort of 
you know, started to intersect around the age of 13 or 14, because that's when I started to write erotic fiction. Oh. Because I had a lot I had a lot of curiosities and interests about sex, but I had no way to really explore them because of my social difficulties and, and all the challenges I was having as a result of my disability. And so writing became my outlet. And I never felt any shame around it. I never felt like, oh, this is something I shouldn't be writing or reading about. I read it voraciously. I wrote it. I don't think it was probably very good writing because I was a virgin and here I am writing about threesomes. I've never even kissed a boy. <laughs> what, what right do I possibly have? Um, but it was it was just something that came naturally to me, as it were. And so uh, then about 10 years ago, a friend and I started a website that uh, features uh, erotic fan fiction about the monkeys, not the primate, the band from the 1960s, the music <laughs> band. Um, and, and so that, again, it was just something not planned, not on purpose, just sort of happened. Um, and not long before then, about 2006, I had started presenting professionally. I had started to do it. I've been speaking at conferences and events since I was 14 years old, but this was when I started to really do it professionally. And in 2012 was when I began talking about autism and sexuality. I had a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Peter Gerhardt, who has been working with adults on the spectrum for many, many, many years and doing this work for a long, long time. And he asked me to present with him. And he would talk about it from the kind of the clinical perspective as a clinician and professional. And I would talk about it from the personal side. So I would tell my story, basically my experiences with dating and relationships and, and the highs and lows therein. And it really began to reach people. I noticed that, you know, it's one thing to have an expert quote talking about these things, someone who has studied it, who you know knows a lot about it from a clinical point of view, but to hear someone actually share their story is what tends to, to reach people. And what I love about Peter, and, and I apply this to myself as well, is that neither of us will ever call ourselves experts mm. because there is still so much to learn about this. This is, especially this area, but of course in life in general, we, we never stop learning. Um, and this is a, a field that is still developing. There's a, a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and so I, you know, I got my start doing those presentations with Peter and then I began to develop my own presentation. and. Uh, part of what I was able to incorporate into that was my master's thesis, which is I have a master's degree in ABA, which is applied behavior analysis um, in the field of psychology. And I, I taught two adults on the spectrum how to ask someone out on a date using the, the principles of it. So that was my thesis study. Um, and it was really great to be able to kind of talk about that because this was not something that had been done before. If you looked in the research literature, it was all about, there's a lot about teaching social skills to people with autism. There's a lot about teaching different other kinds of skills, but not dating skills. That's, mm. just, that's just missing for a variety of reasons. So my, my, what I did was kind of really different than what other people were doing in that regard. And um, when I started my business, Ascot Consulting, in 2010, it was originally to be a uh, college coach for students on the spectrum. I had a certification in that. And then as time went on, you know, a lot of people are doing the college thing. Not a lot of people are doing the sex thing. Mm. So the sex thing kind of took over. Um, and, and the need has just become greater and greater as time has gone on. And uh, just for some reason, people have started looking at me as an authority and <laughs> asking, you know, I, I was asked to uh, be a guest expert on Slate.com a couple of months ago. They have a, a how to do it sex advice column. They had a question from an autistic woman and the guy emailed me. He's like, I know nothing about autism. You want to, you know, answer this? I, I said, sure. So that was, that was really, you know, an extraordinary thing. And, and, and it just keeps happening. It's been snowballing. So. That's awesome. That's really, yeah. really fantastic. Wow. 
Cool. Thank you for walking us through that journey. Um, and of course, as you said, I felt like when you mentioned like your colleague, Peter, when you were kind of like the learner from like kind of sharing your experience and then the student became the teacher, right? Like you kind of like through enough experience and obviously through your master's program in academia and really like learning to to do this work um, have become an expert in your own right. So that that's really incredible. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, so let's talk about sex education a little bit, right? So as we know, the curriculum truly barely covers pleasure and healthy relationships, let alone what, the, what those things can look like and feel like for people on the autism spectrum, right? So I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a crash course on what's really important to include in sex ed when it comes to teaching about autism and sexuality. Well, the interesting thing is that the things that I think are important to include in sex ed they aren't just good for people on the spectrum. They are, you know, because what, what we often learn in school is about, you know, like the anatomy, the basics, about, you know, pregnancy and, and, the, and the physical stuff. And what's missing is all the social stuff, mm. all the elements of, of dating and sex that, that are involved the social elements. You know, how do you create intimacy with somebody? How do you meet someone? How do you, you know, all of that is so important and crucial. And that's the stuff that people on the spectrum tend to really struggle with. Um, but you know, what I've learned too, is that neurotypicals struggle with that as well, but they're just able to kind of hide it better. But they, they, this information would, would benefit everybody. That's, that's the thing about it is totally. it's like when they invented curb cuts, you know, on, on, on the sides of streets there for, for wheelchair users that ended up benefiting everybody, not just people who use wheelchairs, mm -hmm. people who push strollers, people with, with physical impairments of other types. So when we make these accommodations, they really you know, are, aren't so much accommodations. They're, they're common sense things that we should have been talking about all along totally. and that to benefit a, a wide swath of people. Um, but there are some considerations. There are some things that are specific to people on the spectrum, like sensory issues, which a lot of autistic people experience. And, you know, sex is a very sensory-oriented experience. And so what do you do if you want to have sex but you don't like to be touched or you, you react strongly to, to smells or, or the feel of bodily fluids? You know, that, that's something that takes getting used to. Um, I, I don't know how graphic we're allowed to get on here. But Please, as graphic as you'd like. <laughs> the, the first time I ever smelled semen, I was like, that's what that's, what am I, <laughs> it's, it's such an unusual Quite. perfume, if you will. And, and I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like taking a glass of wine and putting it under your nose and trying to, what, what's the bouquet here? You know, it's, <laughs> but there is no bouquet in the semen. It's just body it's just you know and if you're not used to that and especially the, the feeling of it as well it can be really really alarming and upsetting for people who, who do not you know who have challenges with those sensory inputs um so but but one thing you know that, that i think is important to keep in mind because i have heard this from other people on the spectrum and it's this may be particular to women as well and not just the fact that you're on the spectrum but sometimes a touch can feel wrong or bad if, if you don't feel connected to the person. It's mm -hmm. like, I, I don't, that, you know what I mean? If you don't feel that you could trust this person, right. then it feels bad. But if you're being, then, then a woman, I've heard this from women on the spectrum, then they'll be touched in the same exact way by a partner they do trust and it doesn't feel wrong. Mm. So there's a huge amount, I think, of, 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 the, of the mental and the emotional tied into the physical here in, in this. Again, this may be, you know, something that a lot of women experience, not just on the spectrum, but particularly for women on the spectrum, I, I, I hear this. And it's one of the challenges to overcoming a lot of those, those sensory issues that, that people on the spectrum face. 
So Yeah, no, that's really, really interesting. And I really like the point of like, it's not some of these things about communication and intimacy are great for everyone, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's a super fantastic and very crucial foundation for young people to talk about communication, to talk about healthy relationships, to talk about, you know, if you are someone on the spectrum and you feel comfortable, like sharing about your, you know, what, what your capabilities are, kind of your, your emotions and feelings around certain things, communication is super important so that your partner or partners can, can really adapt to your, your experiences. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what I hear from people over and over again, when I give my presentations is I'm not autistic and I totally went through that or I'm, I'm not on the spectrum and I totally relate to that. And so that's what I try to, to do with my work. Um, and actually with the book that I'm running right now, which is called The Naughty Audi, which is a memoir uh, of my experiences with dating and sex as a woman on the spectrum, Love it. is, is to show that even though we are different, there's a lot of similarities too. There's a lot we have in common. Um, and I think part of the reason why we don't have these full dialogues around sexuality and autism and, and disability overall is how much we are othered by mainstream society, how it's looked at as, we're looked at as being so different that this is not something that applies to people with disabilities. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there are horror stories. There are, there are I, I, I once heard Dr. Isabel Hinault pre uh, present. She is based up in Quebec, Montreal. She's a sexologist and works with people on the spectrum and couples. And she was working with a, a, couple, a young man who, uh, he took his medication and one of the side effects was erectile dysfunction. And he was trying so hard to maintain an erection that he was causing physical harm, you know, trying to do this. And she went and spoke to the guy's doctor and said, why didn't you tell him this was a side effect, a possible side effect of the medication? And the doctor said, well, I didn't think it mattered. He's autistic. He's not going to have sex. Oh, boy. And, and so this is so damaging. This entire, you know, unfortunately, a lot of this comes from popular culture, too. It's reinforced by the stereotypes of autism that we see in the media in shows like The Big Bang Theory, which I'm so glad is off the air now because I hated it. Um, I also hate that show. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's trash. Um, which is weird. I feel like I should go because Amy Farrah Fowler, like I very much relate to Amy Farrah Fowler in many ways because I'm also an Amy and other reasons. But at the same time, there was a lot of problems there. But um, but so there are plenty of people on the spectrum who, of course, are asexual, who certainly identify as asexual. And that is absolutely fine. But when that becomes the dominant stereotype of a whole group of people, then it becomes a, a big problem. And then the, the other issue as well is that if we do have discussions about sexuality and autism, they're almost all from a kind of heteronormative perspective. Mm. Um, but there are actually a huge number of people on the spectrum who identify as LGBTQ. Uh, I think even more so than in the general population is what I've heard, which may be just due to more honesty and reporting. And um, But but there are. There are so many folks who, who are on the spectrum who are LGBTQ and who are, are also not having their needs met and they're facing double stigma as a result. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into that a little bit because I, I recently watched Netflix's Love on the Spectrum, which I'm sure, you know, this is a big thing that you have been asked and are going to be asked about a lot because I feel like, speaking of pop culture, it's just such a, a really public way of looking at people on the spectrum dating and meeting people and like really an intimate look at their lives. And I personally really enjoyed watching it while also obviously recognizing that there are ways that it could have been improved, like everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just super curious, what did you think of the show? Um, what did you think it, it did well? And, and what do you think it missed? Well, I, I have been asked about it. That's true. Um, 
I actually had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with the uh, creator and the producer of the show. Um, they're looking to do a, yeah, they're looking to do a U.S. version of it, and I had introduced myself. I, I, I had gotten four emails from different people since February about this, and I wasn't going to reach out. I, I had heard some negative things about the Australian version, and then I thought, okay, fine, sign from the universe. I'll just shoot them an email. We'll see what happens. Awesome. So we had a, we had a Zoom meeting. And they may be interested in having me on the show, not as a participant, but as a coach, possibly, mm-hmm. for for the folks. And so I finally had – they sent me the links because I'm the only person on the planet who doesn't have Netflix, apparently. <laughs> and so I got I got to watch them, and I see the concerns that, that I that people have – well, I, I mean, there were some things that touched me deeply, obviously. The proposal, Tom proposing to Ruth, oh, I just – so I, sweet. I just – I mean, I just bawled. Um, I thought that was lovely. But then – you know, one of the first contestants we see is, is this young man, and he's off the bat saying some very problematic things about women. Mm. And and then, you know, we see his family, and his, his parents seem to be laughing at him and kept laughing at him. And I got the distinct impression they were not taking him seriously. And what we see a lot of the time is an infantilization of adults on the spectrum, which is that which is why we don't have these conversations about sexuality, because we think of them as permanent children and being innocent. And so, but then when your child is an adult and in their 20s and espousing some very problematic views about women, it's not cute. It's not, oh, ha, he said this funny thing. Right. It's a serious problem. This is, this is this young man's worldview. You are his parent. Your job is to guide him and not to laugh uncomfortably because you don't know what to say. Totally. Not, you know what I mean? And so it, I, I was just struck by that. I, I mean, I felt, I felt a pang of sympathy because... I also thought I knew a lot about sex because of all the writing I did, all the fiction I wrote, um, only to discover when I finally got into the actual act of having sex how little I really knew. Because <laughs> um, I knew plenty in theory, but when you're actually there, it's, it's a whole, whole, whole different, different world. Yeah, and, and you, know, you, you just watch and you think this, this is literally someone who's never had actual contact with a human female. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's sad. It's, it's sad, you know, because... But nobody's ever talked to this person either. Nobody has given this young man the proper sex education that he needs and deserves. That's the impression that I was getting from that, and that concerned me. Um, but I, I also, you know, there was kind of a bit of a voyeuristic element, I thought, to some of the contrived dates that people were sent on. Yeah, very much was like reality show, awkward, and it just for like people not on the spectrum, that would have been also still awkward. It would have, but there's... I feel that if you're aiming for the neurotypical viewer, if, if, if you're an NT watching a, a regular dating show, you know, you're meant to kind of sympathize or, or, or empathize with one of the people there or somehow. But this kind of felt like there was a veil between the viewer and the participants. It felt like there was a, you know, in, in much the same way that some of the participants went out to a zoo and were watching the animals. That's how I felt the viewer was meant to watch them. Mm-hmm. And that was uncomfortable to me. Yeah. That was... Um, you know, I, I, I worry that it didn't quite delve into the inner lives of these people. As we, do. It, It's like um, there's a, a show, another show called Atypical. I, I've only seen the first season. I haven't seen the seasons after that. But okay. I, I, what I observed was that we were getting the inner lives and the perspectives of, of everyone else except for the young man who was supposed to be on the spectrum. We were, it was as if he had no inner life, as if the – you know. And so this is – you know, when we talk about getting more people on the spectrum into 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 – film and TV, getting them to portray the roles of, of people on the spectrum. Uh, it's not just that that we need. We need autistic people behind the camera as right. well, writing, 
and, and because that that is what's going to inform the, the the portrayals that we see. That's what's going to make a difference. Um, I you know I very much related to a lot of these participants. Um, that, uh, the gal with the short hair, yeah, Gabby, not Gabby. It was two B's. Oh, Abby. I can't remember. I can't remember their names right now. I feel like I saw it a couple months ago, but I know who Maddie, you're talking. Maddie, 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 Maddie. I, Madeline, I love right? Maddie. When she said the thing about, I don't want to have children because they're a waste of time and money. I'm like, yes! <laughs> Say it! Say she, it! Yeah, she was funny. But then, you know, you, I felt like all the advice that was being given to these folks was not the best advice. You have, you know, uh, one of the other participants was told to, to, like, lie, to go say she had to powder her nose. And she said, I don't have any nose powder. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have nose powder either. I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, we, 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 we are so twisted when it comes to our communication around dating. Um, we, we are so, especially women are taught to kind of eschew directness and to try to spare men's feelings. But that is not something, you know, that is, is helpful when it comes to people on the spectrum. We are more direct individuals and, and it's, and these kinds of things you can't be subtle about. People are not going to understand, you know, if, if you're beating around the bush and the, the other thing that I thought was problematic was that it only showed autistic individuals dating other autistic individuals or people with other disabilities. Um, and, and there are many people on the spectrum who date neurotypicals, who date people who don't have any diagnosis. And that and that's something that I, I, I'm not sure why that wasn't looked at. And if they were going to choose to focus on autistics dating other autistics, why did they have this coach trying to impart neurotypical dating standards on them? What? Mm. How is this? Every time I saw one, there was one participant, Kelvin, this young young man who was Chinese, and he was trying to you know go through this script that the coach had given him, and it was so awkward and it was so you know difficult to watch because he was struggling. Once he let go of that and just started being himself, it got much much better. You could see him relax. You could see the whole tone of the date change. And so it's 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 a it's a difficult thing when you want to give people a script for a dating situation. Because dating situations, by their very nature, are so different. Every person is different. Every situation is different. And for a lot of people on the spectrum, we want to apply what we're told to each situation. But if they're even slightly different, we can't. Right. It's not exactly the same situation. It's very challenging to apply those things that we've been taught. And just dating by its very nature is is changing, is, is not you know static. And so – and it can be very frustrating when you're trying to play by the rules and you see – you know, Fonzie over here not playing by the rules and he's getting all the girls. It's like, what the hell? I'm doing what I was told to do and, I'm, and it's not working and Fonzie's getting all the girls. All he does, does is beat a jukebox. <laughs> you know? So <laughs> that's a I gr- wish I had a more current reference than that, but that's just what came <laughs> No, mind. everyone loves the Fonz. I mean, that's great. Um, a question I have though, like specifically about Kelvin and for those of you who haven't seen, like someone <clears throat> like Kelvin who needs higher support needs as a coach, like as someone like you, what what would you have said to Kelvin? Like, what are some tips that people who need higher support needs, who want to date, um, what are those tips? Well, I, I would have tried to find a style that works for him rather than trying to push my style or what I think is correct on him. Because you know, when it comes to, well, it comes to many things, but especially with autism, we, we want a one-size-fits-all approach. But there is no one-size-fits-all with autism. It is there's uh, an expression that's often attributed to Stephen, Dr. Stephen Shore, which is that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. <laughs> and, and it's absolutely true. Um, we, we all may share a diagnosis, but we're all very different people. And so I, I, if I had been working with Kelvin, I would have wanted to try to find 
you know, what, what works best for him, what, what is going to help him be successful here. And the other thing too, is, is that I found that they kept wanting to set goals. Like we saw the, the peers program at UCLA and, and they're talking about what's the goal defining common interests. How many of us go out on a date with a goal in mind? Like that's not what dates are, right? It's not, you know, you're still thinking in terms of IEPs, which is an individual education plan. Um, you're still thinking in terms of like how we teach people on the spectrum in school settings, but in the real world, you know, not every date, you know, is something that has, a goal. it's just about being with somebody and getting to know Connecting. someone, you know, yeah, it shouldn't be kind of trying to check a, a mental list. Like it, it, does, it just doesn't work. I, I, we, and if we would not expect neurotypicals to do that on dates, why would we expect the people on the spectrum? Mm, that's a really great point. That is a super good point. Um, <clears throat> Moving on a little bit, because I am, am super curious about uh, what we talked about previously before recording, which is the the fact that there are potentially unique issues faced by women on the autism spectrum in dealing with dating and sexuality. So I want to know if you can talk about this and kind of share some recommendations or education that you teach women with autism looking for long-term or short-term romantic partnerships. Sure. Well, certainly as a woman on the spectrum myself, I, I can tell you I have, you know, faced some unique circumstances. And, and the one that immediately comes to mind is going to support group meetings. And so there are, you know, some meetings for adults on the spectrum, social meetings and support meetings. But you walk in and th there are three and four times as many males diagnosed with autism as females. And the reason for that, you know, we, we could be talking about that all day, but a large part of it is that the criteria we use to diagnose autism were developed observing boys and it presents differently in girls. And so girls get missed, girls get misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed. Many of the women I know were not diagnosed until they were in their thirties, forties, fifties. And yeah, and now, you know, the average age of diagnosis is like two and three, but still boys and especially white boys are the ones being diagnosed most frequently because of these particular criteria. And so you walk into one of these meetings and you are outnumbered immediately and and for me, the men either hit on me or they treated me like I was an alien. And I was not there for either of those things. Um, you know, I'm not here to be your girlfriend. Like I, I know, you know, and, and part of that also is because a lot of the people who are um, care providers and who work with people on the spectrum are women, teachers, paraprofessionals, aides, parents, mothers. So, so a lot of times maybe men on the spectrum will think woman equals someone who will take care of me. It's like, that's not what I'm here for. You know what I mean? I, I can't, I'm trying to just get my own shit together. I can't manage your feelings. <laughs> can't deal with your shit. Right. But, but so the societal expectations that we place on women, autistic women are affected by those just as much as neurotypical women. We feel the pressure and the burden of those expectations just as much about having to look a certain way, about having to act a certain way. And what you have happen a lot of the time is that autistic women will mask or camouflage their symptoms. So I, I call myself a failed masker. I, I tried. I thought that I was, you know, playing it cool when I was younger, but I was extremely obvious and my peers knew it. My peers called it out and I, I could not hide who I really was. Um, just couldn't do it for the life of me. But so many women, you know, they, they will learn coping mechanisms. They will learn how to get along socially in our world because that's what's expected of women. And they will carry this veneer over them all day long. And then they get home and they are just exhausted. They are just physically and psychologically drained from having to, to act this way, which is not who they are. And so, um, and that, but that is also often why women get missed as well with the diagnosis because they're able to kind of copy what, what neurotypicals do. Um, and so then it's thought, well, you're not, you know, 
like a lot, a lot of times you might see an autistic male have a t have a meltdown or act out aggressively, and but a girl will be sitting there quietly and 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 reading, and they'll think, oh, there's nothing wrong with her. She's just she's just reading a lot. But no, that that's not the case. And a lot of the times, women on the spectrum will internalize, where boys will go external, women will go internal and have rich and detailed fantasy lives. And but it will be just as much of a problem as as the external stuff is for for males. And so. We're just not taken seriously. We're, we're you know, treated as though our, our issues are not as important as, as males. And then when we get into dating and, 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 and sexual situations, you know, boundaries are such a, a huge, huge thing, right? And, and no is a complete sentence. But if your whole life you're taught that your no doesn't matter, that, you know, oh, because we, we, this is a whole other issue of how we treat autistic children and trying to get them to be compliant all the time, right? Mm. But, but for, for women... In particular, and I, this was my experience as well, it's that, oh, this, this guy is giving me attention. I have to take it because maybe no guy will ever want to be with me again. Hmm. If I screw this up, that's it. And so I found myself in situations where I would have a guy messaging me on, on AOL and some messenger. This is going back. Um, Gotta love AIM. Yep. And say, you know, I please, I just, I need to jerk off. Just let me see you. Just let me see you pushing and pushing. And I didn't have the confidence, the self-confidence or awareness or the wherewithal to say no I'm not comfortable. I don't want to do it. So feeling obligated, feeling like, well, he, he just needs this. I just need to do that. And so it, it just made me end up in situations that I was not comfortable in. Um, it made me desperate to want to please men, especially when I had sex for the first time. I thought, if I, you know, if I screw this up, nobody's ever going to want to have sex with me again. He won't want to have sex with me again. And I actually, um, so two things. I... <laughs> He, he said that he had a thing for cheerleaders. And so I was living in Seattle at the time and I got myself a University of Washington Huskies cheerleader <laughs> uniform, um, which I, which the event of the night started out with me being naked. And then I wound up putting on the uniform partway through um, because he was having some trouble maintaining his erection. And, and I said, oh, here, I got a surprise for you. So I wound up losing my virginity in a University of Washington Huskies cheerleader uniform. Fantastic story. <laughs> um, the second part is that I, I thought, okay, I need some feedback, right? I want to know that I've done a good job because if I, like, I, like I said, if I mess this up, he'll never want to have sex with me again. So I thought, well, if you stay at a hotel, you eat at a restaurant, they have these cards that you can fill out to talk about your experience. So I made a sexual intercourse comment card. And, uh, you know, it, it, and, it, and it, the questions were on the back of the card. And, you know, please rate this sex session from a scale of one to five. Did you enjoy, what did you enjoy most about this? What happened that you'd like to have happen again? What didn't have happened? Please rate the following. My outfit pre-intercourse, my vocal volume, um, my facial expression. Is there anything I can do in the future to maximize your enjoyment? And there was a problem with these questions. And I didn't realize it at the time. But I, I, I realize it now with the benefit of much hindsight. And the problem with these questions is that they're all about his enjoyment. Mm. There was nothing about my pleasure, about whether I was enjoying myself. So my pleasure was secondary if it existed at all. And, and I, you know, when I used to write my erotic stories, they would end with, with the guy having an orgasm. I didn't know that was a thing women could do. Like I, I, that, I mean, that was the benefit of, you know, that was the result of a lack of experience, obviously, and the lack of knowledge. Well, um, also that, like all porn, like most porn at that time and still now is centered around the penis and penis pleasure and like cis male pleasure. So that's not an accident. Right, right. Well, I, I mean, I was, you know, they say that, that men watch their porn and women read their porn. And I, I certainly was th that in that case. I was reading. I read voraciously. and But when I would write, that was just, you know, that was the limitation of my of my experience. And like you say, with what we're 
you know, even in sex ed in school, if we were taught about masturbation, it was something that boys did. I didn't even know girls could do that. Um, you know, I, I didn't do it for the first time until the summer before my senior year of college. So I was 21 years old, maybe. Um, and then once I discovered vibrators, I was like, that's a bit of, what, what was the point of men? I don't, just get it. I'm <laughs> I don't need you them know. anymore. <laughs> but, um, but yes. So I, what I came to learn is that there is a difference between having sex and someone having sex with you, um, between being a passive participant and an active participant. And at that time I was very much still a passive participant and I didn't, you know, I just, and, and I was still deferring to people who had more experience than I did, thinking I didn't have a right to express my own needs. And that's a huge, huge issue for women on and off the spectrum, for people on and off. We don't have these honest discussions around sexuality. We live in a very sexualized society. There's titillation at every turn, sex at every turn, but we don't have actual honest discussions about sex. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. Completely. Yes. Everything is in metaphor or it's hidden or, you know seen yep. by, you know, parents and by caretakers as like, no, no, you're too young for this. When really like kids are gonna like be exposed to messages and movies and TV shows and from Absolutely. what their friends are doing and thinking and seeing. And like the earlier, of course, age, in an age appropriate way that parents and caregivers and, and older people can kind of share the fact that those things are healthy and that there's a time and a place for it. Um, I think that is, is incredibly important. Um, it's, it's extremely important. And it's, and what happens when you don't have that is that we have, there are actually a high preponderance of people on the spectrum who are in the criminal justice system mm. for sexually related offenses because they were not given the proper education. They were not told this is not acceptable. And the law doesn't care if you're autistic. The law doesn't care if you have a disability. You stalk somebody, you're going to jail. Like, that's it. You, you, you know, and it, it, so it, it creates unimaginable consequences when we don't educate people on the spectrum properly about sex. Totally. Um, I have one more question for you. This has been super awesome, um, and I feel like I've learned a ton, and I hope that listeners has, have also learned a ton. Um, but let's get into the sex and pleasure part a little bit. Cause in the beginning of the interview, you kind of talked about how there's this common misconception that people on the autism spectrum don't have sex or are not sexual beings. Um, and there's a lot of infantilizing that goes on by people, um, not on the spectrum by neurotypical people. Um, I want to know if you can not only bust that myth and talk about why it's important to dispel it, but I want to, I want some tips for, folks who are listening who are neurotypical and are caregivers of, you know, kids and whether they're like, you know, babysitters, teachers, parents, older cousins, older siblings, um, you know, of how neurotypical folks like that can support people who are on the autism spectrum when it comes to dating, relationships, sex, and pleasure. Sure, sure. Well, again, you know, a, a large part of the issue of why pleasure is often neglected is because when we have conversations about autism and sexuality, if we have them, it's almost always centered around safety, keeping people on the spectrum safe. And unfortunately, there, there, there is a preponderance of folks on the spectrum being more vulnerable to abuse, especially autistic women. We're far more likely to be abused, be it physically, sexually, financially, emotionally, uh, than, than the neurotypical population. And so what people you know, often neglect to realize is that we're more likely to be abused by somebody with access and opportunity and not by a stranger. And the way that you keep somebody safe is that you empower them. You, you give them information, you help them learn what they like, what they don't like, what are their boundaries? 
how to say no, how to make it clear what they, you know. And, and so if we, I remember for the longest time, I never felt connected to my own body. I often compare it to holding a balloon that you're just barely holding onto the earth, barely mm-hmm. tethered. That was how I felt about my body. When I got my period for the first time, I went through five pairs of underwear before, and I had no clue what was happening. So my mother walked in the bathroom and said, oh, you're a woman now. I said, what? You know, I, I didn't understand. I had no clue what was going on. And, um, and so it wasn't until I got to college and I had my first boyfriend that I began to see myself as a sexual being. We, we as people on the spectrum are not taught to see ourselves as sexual beings. We, again, that comes from that kind of infantilization thing. But when, when that happens, you know, we don't have the opportunities to get to know our bodies the way that neurotypical teenagers do, the way that, you know what I mean? So often these behaviors are pathologized, are treated like things that have to be stopped. Oh, what, what, why is he doing that? Oh, there's, there's, there's something wrong. And you know, he's just trying to get off, like, like find a way to teach that appropriately, give he, he or she the outlet that they need, you know, and sometimes it has to be taught explicitly. There are, there are instruction guides out there for teaching people with disabilities, how to masturbate safely. There are, you know, tools and things that, that people, it's not that um, a caregiver, you know, or a parent should be doing this, not by any means, but there are videos that provide instruction. There are things for people with, with high support needs and people with minimal support needs. These materials are, are, are out there, but so many, you know, parents and, and providers don't even want to begin to to explore them, you know, because that means having these conversations that so many people are still uncomfortable around. And that's not even getting into, of course, the ethical implications and the challenges around teachers, you know, having to teach some of this stuff, which is a whole other challenge. But the, the, the most telling thing, I think, is that sex ed for, for neurotypicals is opt out. So it's assumed you're going to get it and you can ha- choose to opt your child out. But for people on the spectrum, it's opt in. Mm. It is not a given that you're going to have it. It is not automatic. And parents have to choose for their child to get the sex education. How many are really choosing for them to get it? And, and, then, and, then, and then the quality of sex education is not consistent throughout all the states in the country either. Right. Um, you know, in, in many cases, it's not even required to be medically accurate in some states. Correct. Um, you know, some states have abstinence-only curricula, which are absolutely of no help whatsoever. So Negative help. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you want people to, you know, be safe, you, you need to empower them. You need to teach them about, right? Because sex is fun. It is pleasurable. It shouldn't just be, you know, mechanical. That's not, that's not what it is. So how do we encourage people just say, like, yeah, I like, I enjoy this. And if something isn't feeling right, why is it not feeling right? And what do I, you know what I mean? So we, we just have to have more direct and honest conversations. And that's what's missing. If you're someone in a long distance relationship, quarantine can be especially difficult without your boo. What if you could have an exact replica of your partner's penis or vulva to use as a sex toy? While the year 2020 certifiably blows, at least we have Clona Willie to make our LDR dreams come true. Intrigued? Learn more at www.clonawilly.com and use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalow, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. 
Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.